Good afternoon, Manir. Good morning, Charles. So we've done nine episodes of Island to date, and that takes us up through all of Adrian Block's voyages to this new world, of which there were four. And on the final one, we got the, the mother load of the Unrust. The trouble really came to a head. And again, it wasn't trouble between the Dutch and the natives necessarily. It was really unrest amongst the, the Dutch merchant sailors who were coming here, primarily emanating from the supercargo aboard Captain Tice Volkert's Mosul's vessel, whose name was Hans Joris Hunter. And that's the point we're at right now. Where do we go from here? How is Manhattan different now versus right before Henry Hudson saw it for the first time? A lot has happened, I think. The main difference that happens in these few years, we're really only talking about five years. Here, right. Between the arrival of Hudson in 1609 and... Um, Adrian's block voyages in 1613, 1614. The main transformation is that it links Manhattan to the rest of the world much more intensively. There have always been connections between the island of Manhattan and the people living there prior to Hudson's arrival with indigenous groups around it, with uh, and that is its concentric circles in terms of its involvement, and that it must have connected Manhattan not just to groups in what we now call Canada or in what we now call Virginia, but even further west. And it's obvious from um, the information that we have from later decades that a place like Manhattan was very much connected to trade routes all along the eastern seaboard, but also inland through the Great Lakes and perhaps even up to the West Coast to some extent. What happens in 1609 with the first arrival of a European in the close vicinity of the island which means it is a lot closer, a lot more intimate in terms of connections than what happened earlier on in the 16th century, is that it sparked, that, that Hudson's voyage sparks off this trade connection. What it means is that the people living on Manhattan, Native Americans living on Manhattan and in the surrounding area, gain access to trade goods of a quality that they may have known of before, but now they become available much quicker and in much larger quantities. So in terms of the technological impact, that accelerates in terms of the contact with diseases that becomes accelerated too. So it's not a complete, um, absolute transition an absolute change that happens. It's a, an acceleration on this specific spot of transformations that were already taking place along the eastern seaboard in places like Virginia and in places like Canada. But now Manhattan suddenly is linked much more closely to all these events. It becomes much more on the frontier of 
what we call European expansion. Now, that is, of course, a term that we have to be quite careful with um, because it emphasizes the role of the Europeans. And we should, in all fairness, both look at what the Europeans are trying to do, but also, of course, in what Native Americans are trying to do. And it's not just a reaction. They have, they don't just react to the presence of Europeans. They have their own agency. They have their own agenda. And that is something that we will be coming to as well in the next few episodes when we take up the story of Orson and Valentine again. Right. Why is this, why is this history so unknown to most people? And I, I'm just using my own experience. I came up through public schools in New York uh, and I went to college and I went to graduate school. I never knew any of this until I started exploring it for myself once I was out of college. Why is this story, which I am thoroughly convinced is really the core of our true American history, why is this not taught and why is this so unknown to so many people? Well, professional historians have always known about parts of this, and of course, they're still exploring it through looking at new sources and looking at old sources in new ways. The way in that which that um, trickles down into the regular education system, either in, in, in New York State or on a local level, is an entirely different story. There has been a tendency, and there still is a tendency, to make um, the telling of history serve other purposes, whether that is nationalism, patriotism, some kind of pride, or in, in as also happens, uh, enhancing ethnic profiles, that all of that plays into it. Also, we have to take into account that, like any other history, it gets complicated once you know more about it. So what we find in, especially in, in, in primary education and to some extent in, in secondary education is that we have to very carefully choose what to put to pupils. That, that, that even applies at the university level. You don't start teaching this kind of history in such a kind of detail because it overwhelms people. People can only, anybody, that, that, that applies to university professors as well as, as to primary school kids, can only process so much new information per installment. So you don't want to overload pupils because then actually history does become one damn thing after another. So it's, it's a gradual process and it's a selective process in which elements from the general body of knowledge about the past get filtered into educational systems. But yeah, again, American students almost across the board in this country know about the Mayflower Pilgrims. They know a little bit about Virginia, colonial Virginia, Williamsburg and that. We don't learn anything about this story. Nobody knows Adrian Block unless they go to Block Island. Um, we know Henry Hudson because we drive on his parkway and we we see his beautiful river. But it's not taught. It's just always it's one of the reasons this whole study fascinates me because it's my home. But also, why don't we know it? Uh, and, and I know you and you know, an entire group of scholars and historians and authors do know this story 
extremely well. I know that. But I mean, that's a small uh, minority of people and professionals. I mean, across the board, we've brought this to people via the podcast and we've gotten some incredible responses of people just saying things like, I can't believe I never heard this story. Where does this, how, why do we not know this? Why is this not more talked about? Does it have to do with the fact that it starts from a Dutch story and then this nation became English before it became the United States of America? Is, is that part of the reason why this swath of the story is sort of canceled out or erased out? Maybe canceled isn't the right word to use these days. I think the Dutch background de definitely plays a role here. Virginia is known because it was basically the first more or less permanent English colony on the North American coast. The pilgrims are well known because actually after the Civil War, the emphasis, the attempt at reunification of the United States focused on the pilgrims as the epitome of what was considered Americanness at the time. Hence, also the invention of Thanksgiving as a national feast. And that actually also points at the nationalistic lens through which history is often perceived. Countries in their public culture have to find a way to uh, justify their existence. And by looking at the past and saying, We've always been here, or at least almost always, and we've always been English. English is the main language. Well, sorry, there were some Dutch people as well. So it is the odd man out among the 13 colonies in that it has some 50 years of non-English history. And that made it difficult for the Dutch story to be told. When it was told, for instance, by Washington Irving, it was done in the form of a caricature. So is Adrian Block being discriminated against because he's Dutch and not English? Well, I think it's, it's first of all, Hudson was the discoverer, and that brings about a status that still resonates down the centuries. Second, Hudson was English, and after 1674, New York becomes a colony under English rule. Gradually, also, the majority of the colonists becomes, become English. So that really plays into it. And thirdly, there is the whole issue of sources. Hudson's story was already published by 1625. Bloch's story, however, wasn't published until first parts in the 1840s by O'Callaghan and then in the 1950s by Simon Hart. So the knowledge that comes from sources about Block came much later than anything we know about Hudson. So there are at least three factors there that are in Hudson's favor In if we want to set this up as a competition between Hudson and Block. And one of the veins of our modern decade, I think, is that that background has become more and more prominent. Charles Effenepauze, we'll be right back after the break. So it's interesting. You, you touched on a few points that have been uh, <laughs> on my mind. Uh, we've gotten some nice comments, some very nice comments um, on the podcast, and we've gotten some not so nice comments. And, and honestly, I, I read them all and I, I respect them all. I respect everybody's opinion. They're, they're right. To, they hear what they hear, you know. Um, but 
we got one, we got a few. One said the title of the comment is very white centric. While there's a lot of great enthusiasm from the narrator, there's a little over sensationalism in the narrative about the white explorer while glossing over slavery and indigenous genocide, especially in the first episode. Did oh, now, in all fairness, did that listener listen to this series? Could the, could that person possibly have listened to this all nine episodes so far? Well, what we get from both sides of the divide here in how to view history is a knee-jerk reaction. And I'm inclined to say that if on the basis of the first episode you get the criticism that there is no mention of slavery, well, that's because... Hudson arrived in 1609 and slavery did not arrive until almost two decades later. So it's simply is not in the remit of the first episodes to talk about slavery. We have paid more attention to Hudson's interactions, both friendly and hostile, with the Native Americans than we have to the internal affairs of his trade, of his the reasons why he was sent out, the conflicts that were involved in Europe about the, the whole context of his voyage. So no, I don't think that criticism on the basis of just a few episodes is a fair comment. I agree with you. And uh I also want to point out that we we don't take a side. We are analyzing what history you are an expert in and what I continue to read and learn about and learn from you and other scholars. And we tell it like we see it. <laughs> and that's it. I think it's also important. You, you said... An, a, an important word earlier. It's complicated. This series and this story, it's complicated. Not everybody is the same. And the difference just between somebody like Hudson and somebody like Adrian Block is fairly profound. Can you talk about the character of those two men and how they differ? Well, let me get back to that question a little later. Um, because one of the things you you said is that we are not taking sides. No, I don't think we are. We are talking about things as we see them. However, we cannot deny that you, from your perspective, and I from my perspective, um, in the way we tell a story, are always restricted by our own background. And that applies to anybody looking back in time. So the issue then becomes whether our perspective, in to the extent to which it is a joint perspective, is actually something that we could even get rid of. I think we can try. I think we should try to be as objective as possible. But I don't think that perspective in itself should be prioritized over striving for objectivity and arguing according to the tenets of what admittedly, is a Western view of what scholarship should look like. I'm perfectly willing to admit that that isn't all there is, but it is a way of arguing, a way of reasoning that has its roots in the 17th century 
actually in the scientific revolution of the 17th century, in which the dogmas of the church were gradually being eroded by people like Descartes, who pretty much said, well, let's start, let's go back at the beginning. I think, therefore I am. And that is his starting point as a rational approach to viewing the world around us. Modern science is still based on that precept. We don't think perspective trumps the scholarly tenets of any particular discipline. So that that is the first thing that I wanted to say. Now, who were the two people you mentioned? Because I've, of course, forgotten. Oh, they were minor characters, uh, Henry Hudson and Adrian Block. You've heard of them, right? Ah, they, they spent a few years there at the most. Adrian Block, itinerant trader, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Henry Hudson in a way, is despite all the brouhaha about him, is a relatively minor character. He's mentioned everywhere. And that is actually the most tangible, most palpable effect of the journey that he made. And beyond the fact that his voyage launched an avalanche of subsequent events, his own role wasn't as important as it is nowadays, often made out. And most certainly not if you look at that, at how often his name is being mentioned in all kinds of place names and other features on Manhattan and other places. If, if Hudson hadn't come along, then somebody else would have. And you know this as well as I do, because we know that at this point in time, in the early 16-teens, the Dutch were already looking at the Northwestern Passage also. And one of the ships that did so actually arrived in the Hudson River. So if it hadn't been Hudson, it would have been one of those other captains. And that, that is, I think, an important point. Hudson, in that sense, is part of a larger phase of exploratory voyages that would lead to exploitation. Exploration often leads to exploitation, of course. Adrian Block, in a way, is the second step in that process. The chain of events, as we've been establishing it so far, is that Hudson's voyage brought immediate navigational knowledge Back to Amsterdam, most likely indirectly because he didn't go back himself. His journal may have, at least a few of his sailors also went back to Amsterdam. If they divulged this information to others, they would have said, hey, there's a good fur trade to be done. Let's send out a ship. Block on one of his early voyages brings along Orson and Valentine. Well, you cannot parade Native Americans around in Amsterdam without somebody wondering what is going on. Subsequently, what we get is Mosul bringing along someone from the Caribbean, Juan Rodriguez, who establishes a presence in the area. Juan Rodriguez's presence, however, gave rise to the following link in the chain, and that is efforts by what became the New Netherland Company to establish a trading presence. And that is what we get when Fort Nassau up the river is founded. So that, that is the main importance here of Hudson. He was the first to sail this area and him doing that led to a whole chain of events that eventually leads us to New York. Okay. Still doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, it sounds no, it, 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 like he gets the credit because he's English, not Dutch. <laughs> oh yeah. I think that that plays a large part, large, large part in it. And if we look at who did more in these specific years to establish a good connection 
with the Native Americans to set up a trade relation that, as far as he could see, and as far as Native Americans could see, was beneficial to both, then actually Bloch did a, was for the 16 teens much more important than Hudson. But I, I, I would agree with, with your more general point that actually, if you look at what is happening in this history, and we take away everything that happened later, after 1615, when Bloch doesn't appear to have made any more voyages, then Bloch in these six years, on the whole, is much more important than Hudson. However, history is fundamentally unfair. All right. So um, we, I want to get to some of the questions. We're not going to have time for all of them, but um, let's go to let's go immediately to our star pupil, Lance, up in New, New Milford, New Netherland. My question is in regard to Juan Rodriguez, a character with, who appears in the eighth episode, and also I believe he's in the ninth. He is a man who came up from nothing, sailed with the privateers and pirates alike, and when given two separate chances to associate with some enterprising Dutchman, he declined, preferring to settle in this area of, New ne- of what became New Netherland and live life as a free man. With context out of the way, allow me to ask my question. A lot in this podcast is related to not only the demographic and physical development and evolution of New York City, but also to the creation of its culture. And so my question is this. Do you think that Juan Rodriguez was the first New Yorker, not just literally, but also figuratively, the first person to truly embody the phrase, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere in regard to this city? Best regards, Lance. I think the question is more important than the answer, because the question, just asking that question um, and searching for the answer is in itself a learning curve, which I hope Lance would would profit. Because why would you choose someone whom we happen to know something about? And he happens to be perhaps even the earliest. He happens to be an individual, but a very individualistic attitude focused on on making his own way. We can say the same thing, most likely, about many of the Native Americans. The first humans who arrived on Manhattan were not not Europeans. They were probably, uh, of course, they came across the Bering Street uh, Strait some 10,000 years ago, perhaps even more. There is still research going on about that. These were people looking for a better place to live. That has always been the main motive of human migration from the start of humanity. Now, if in what Juan Rodriguez did in those less than a year, probably, that he was in the area, if you want to see in that an example that is worthy of emulation, go for it. Because we all need some kind of example. We cannot always just draw upon our own mental strength to do something. Thinking outside of ourselves for sources of inspiration is always beneficial. So the search for that question, the the search that that question sparks off is more important than my answer saying yes or no to this. Lance is thinking along the right lines and he's improving his thinking capabilities while doing so. I would say so. And I, th- I, the, the, the reason, one of the reasons I love Juan Rodriguez and his story is that it starts, you know, this is a true melting pot and or salad bowl, however you want to look at it, almost from the very beginning. 
Uh, well, yes, I think we can say that because we have Native Americans. In, in just just in these first four five years, we have Native Americans. We have an African American from Caribbean descent. We've got Dutchmen. We've got an Englishman, Henry Hudson. We've got well four major groups there. We've got explorers, traders, settlers in the sense of the Native Americans. We've got different social economic backgrounds then. So in that sense, it is a sign of diversity. However, we now regard diversity as a positive thing. There have been many times in human history, including the history of Manhattan, when it wasn't regarded as something positive, but rather as something negative, as something that could be destructive to the community. That's what we find in the 17th century, of course. History is much more complicated than that. Why are they doing what they are doing? What does it mean? What effects does it have? If we ask those kinds of questions, then we're actually gaining insight into the struggle of humanity to stay alive on a collective level, on a group level, and also on an individual level. For Juan Rodriguez, he wanted to stay alive. He was just trying to, to make a living. And if well, and that's probably one of the things that, that, that Lance also said. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Well, we only know what we know, and we can only suppose what we can suppose <laughs> responsibly. But he seemed like a very capable guy to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I think he was. And his background plays into that, of course, his experience on in in the caribbean his trading smuggling linguistic facilities all of that now hold that thought because we'll be right back so we we read uh one review that was not all that flattering and that i don't necessarily agree with but it again we welcome all all comments and all reviews i want to read another review from somebody who goes by cuba libre um amazing work Chance Kelly is a real legend in the game of New York history. So, okay, let's stop right there and get a check sent to her or him immediately. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, it's all, it's all uh, because of my friend here, Dr. Jacobs. But I'm from the West Coast, but have a little New Yorker in me due to my grandfather leaving the island of Cuba and landing on another home of the free American dream. Thanks so much for the knowledge. Huge fan. Love the island. Kelly and Yap have the facts. That's pretty cool. That's nice to hear. That, that, is, that is good to hear. Also, it's, it's always gratifying to be appreciated if one does anything. Um, so, yeah, what can I say to that? What I want to say to that specifically is um, Cuba Libre has Cuban uh, heritage. Uh, as we get toward uh, 1627, Pete Hine, 1627? 28. So, excuse me. 1628, wait till you hear what happens down at the island of Cuba under the direction of Captain Pete Hine and how the capturing of the Silver Fleet changes the course of Dutch history over the Spanish forever and really is a game changer. And that, that is one of the most incredible stories and uh, very inspirational in many ways. And you, you, you have to be sure you tune in for that part of it as well. 
So once again, folks, I, w- I want to say how much we appreciate all comments and, and questions and that our, our email is open to you all, all the time. And we welcome any, all questions and comments, the podcast island at gmail.com, the podcast island at gmail.com. And that's our website too, the podcast island.com. So stay in touch with us. We love hearing from you. We love hearing what you think about the show, whatever that may be. We love hearing where you're from, what your heritage is, your connection to New York. And even if you don't really have a direct connection to New York, that's okay. If this show is your connection, that's fine. We love being that. And again, this is one of our review episodes, and we will be doing these every approximately four or five episodes going forward. So uh, thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, we look forward to to hearing from you. Manir? And I would also like to ask our listeners, is what, they, what do they think of the music we've been using? Do they like the music of Camerata Trajectina? I know that I like it, but I would like to hear what our listeners think of it. And of course, I'm also saying that because I want to give a plug to Camerata Trajectina, who are doing a wonderful job and we very much appreciate being able to use their music. Yeah, and a lot of times in podcasts or any production, things like music sort of fall into the background and that in a certain way, that's the, the function of it. But I want listeners to know how specific these compositions are and how specific Yap's placement of these particular pieces are within our production because it pertains to the narrative specifically. I know these are details that (laughs) only a few of us really know, but that's how specific this project is and how specific Yap's focus and my focus on it is. And Camerata is a wonderful group. Great. So thank you, Manir. uh, Always a pleasure. And um, we look forward to keeping this voyage moving along. Thank you, everybody. Vedant. To our burgeoning island audience, Vedant. Thank you. You guys are cool. We want to remind you about our companion podcast, Island Voices, talking about the incredible history of Manhattan Island and talking to some of the people who have helped to make it incredible. Like this month's guest, singer-songwriter Suzy Roach, formerly of The Roaches and now touring with her incredibly talented daughter, Lucy Wainwright Roach. This lady is one of a kind and a perfect example of the indelible characters of this incredible island. Island Voices is available on YouTube or wherever you listen to Island. The YouTube channel is Island Voices Podcast on YouTube, Island Voices Podcast on YouTube, and wherever you listen to Island climb aboard. History is cool. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Our 17th century Dutch musical arrangements are courtesy of Camerata Triactina. Research associate James Mallon, executive producer Alec Baldwin for Cavalry Audio and iHeartRadio. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, wow. History is cool. We'll see you next time.